Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Bay Area Theater Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky with interviews conducted over the years and during the pandemic with playwrights, directors, actors, and producers. This interview with director Michael Mayer was first posted on April 15, 2018. Head Over Heels ran in San Francisco from April 10th to May 8, 2018, and then moved on to Broadway to the Hudson Theater where it opened on July 28, 2018, and closed on January 6, 2019, which was a run of 36 previews and 164 performances. An original cast album was released on October 12, 2018. My guest is Michael Mayer, director of a new musical, Head Over Heels, which is having its pre-Broadway tryout at the current theater in San Francisco, Michael Mayer won the Tony Award for Best Director of a Musical in 2007 for Spring Awakening and has been nominated three times for a musical for You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, Thoroughly Modern Millie, and most recently for Hedwig and the Angry Itch. He was also nominated as director for the 1998 production of Arthur Miller's A View from the Bridge. He directed and wrote the book for American Idiot, and the recent reconfiguring of On a Clear Day You Can See Forever. He directed the film version of Michael Cunningham's A Home at the End of the World. His latest film is an adaptation of Chekhov's The Seagull with Annette Bening and Shershi Ronan. Head Over Heels is based on a fairly obscure prose poem called Arcadia and features music by the Go-Go's. Michael Mayer, what brought you to Head Over Heels? I read it and fell in love with it. My agent sent it to me, and I said, I'd love to do it. The producers who had commissioned the work wanted to uh, keep going with it with a new team. And I said I would love to do it. So I talked to the producers, and they hired me. Did you go and read Arcadia? You know, I looked at Arcadia. It's very, very dense. Hard to read. There's some fun stuff in it, but I did not read the whole thing. No. <laughs> well, I glanced at the uh, the synopsis in Wikipedia and got four sentences in. Is it extremely complicated? <laughs> yeah, this is so, a much more simple thing. Well, you came into this after Oregon, after Ashland. How complete was it? How much work did you have to do with the script and with with the Go Go songs? Well, it was a complete script. It was very long, so this the process of working on it. From that text to what we have now, there was a lot of cutting involved, including some songs, reordering, reconceiving some elements of it. It's basic, it, the, the basic heart of it is the same, but I think there are characters have been, one character was jettisoned, a few characters were jettisoned, other characters were um, developed in different ways, and a couple of new songs were added. There's a transgender actor in the show uh, who plays someone who is non-gendered that was there and how did that actor come into the show we created that role of uh, that role was the role the character of the oracle of delphi was always in 
the show, but that's one of the characters that changed in the um ad, in this adaptation. So the character became a non-binary plural, and once that was the case, we were committed to trying to cast a non-gender conforming actor in the role, and we were very fortunate to find Peppermint. How did people deal with that? Did everybody just kind of go, "Oh, okay, great"? The other actors. No, it's really it's 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 really good. It helps explain the character in a great way, and it continues the theme of the different ways that we identify related to our genders in the play, and it also ends up relating, without giving too much away, it ends up relating to the questions of how all the different ways that we love each other and express our love. Your entire career, a lot of political elements, particularly gay rights and gender rights, emerge, uh, particularly from um, Home at the End of the World, your movie, mm -hmm. and on through even Spring Awakening. So this is something that you're looking at. You're not looking at plays that don't have content. That's generally true. I try to find plays that are musicals and movies and whatever the work I do, I, I really want it to not just be entertaining, but also to be about something and to have a political perspective. It's important to me that it incorporate both elements. You worked on um, the recent revival, well, rebooting of On a Clear Day. Yes, that's right. That was a gender change, and you were allowed to do that from the Lerner estate. Yeah, it was the Lerner and the Lane estates were really terrific in letting me take this great liberty with that material, and we tried to sort of, it was, it was a reboot, I would say, more than anything. But I did have this crazy idea once, a long, long time ago, that what if, if you go with the whole theory of reincarnation, that you're not necessarily reincarnated into the same gender that you were originally. And so what if a gay man who was having problems in his relationship went to a shrink and got hypnotized and went back, you know, to do a regression, but went past into his past life and the life before he was a woman. And what would happen if the shrink who was mourning the loss of his wife sort of fell in love with the woman that this man used to be and started to engage in an inappropriate relationship with the guy in order to maintain contact with this woman in the past. And then the gay guy ends up falling in love with the straight shrink and chaos ensues. We did a, a workshop of it at New York Stage and Film at Vassar that played beautifully. And then on Broadway, it didn't seem to work so well for people, which is a tragedy for me. The idea came from you then. Yeah, <laughs> I take full responsibility. Well, I saw uh, New Conservatory last year did a version of it here. Oh, right. How did it work? Beautifully. I interviewed Burton Lane. His attitude was that it was more satiric, and Lerner seemed to buy the reincarnation, which made it very problematic for Lane. Yes. And I think most critics who reviewed the original production at the time, everyone wrote that it was just, you know, 
the whole concept was ridiculous. So if you're not going to buy into it at all, then sure, Lane is writing these melodies that are meant to be kind of satire and and Lerner is writing this book and these lyrics that are, you know, sincere and heartfelt. So it, it was definitely at war with itself. But you saw the potential, particularly after the film, so. Yeah, exactly. For me, those those songs are gorgeous. I love them. I love that score. And I'm willing to go there, you know, with a musical. It's a musical. It's all, you know, up for grabs anyway. And why, why shouldn't that be a valid subject for a musical. How did Spring Awakening come to you? Spring Awakening came to me when a friend of mine at the time, Stephen Sater, playwright, called me up. It was shortly after the horrible Columbine massacre, and uh, he was concerned, as we all were, about, it's ironic to be talking about it now, about the safety of kids and the plight of young people in a society that doesn't seem to be really protecting them from anything. And he called me one day out of the blue and said, I have an idea that might appeal to you. Musical version of Spring Awakening and Duncan Sheik would write the songs. And for some reason, because on paper, it's, that is one bad idea. I said, I love it. And we started talking. <laughs> and from that moment on, it took us about seven years to get the show up. But we had, a, I think, a very fruitful and beautiful collaboration. And bit by bit by bit, we got there with the help of some inspired producers and a very uh, enlightened theater company, The Atlantic. So we ended up making it happen. Head over heels, uh, after talking to a couple of the people involved, uh, it doesn't seem that a musical version of a kind of unreadable <laughs> poem from the late 17th century and the go-go songs, it doesn't sound like it would work. No, but I think I took some great courage from the Spring Awakening experience and was open to the kind of mashup that this was. And when I read it, I, again, I don't know why, but it just worked for me. And I thought, okay, this, I, I get it. I understand how this functions. And I think it's enormously entertaining. After a couple of Tony Awards, they come to you. You don't have to, there's no, no more begging on your part. Well, that's probably, for the most part, it's true. It, it's been great to be on the receiving end of material. But there, you know, every now and then there are things that I want to do and dream of. Tom Hulse, my producing partner on many things, including A Home at the End of the World and Spring Awakening, and I were kicking around the idea of doing a film version of The Seagull, for instance. And so we sort of got that together and that's opening um next month at the tribeca film festival um so that you know so every now and then i'll still have an idea but um by and large yeah i do read a lot of material so that's with saoirse ronan and elizabeth annette. moss annette benning yep. brian dennehy Corey stoll that's yeah. an amazing cast it's a great cast and i'm very very proud of of the film when did you work on it it was two summers ago we shot it, and we've taken our time getting it together. I had a lot of other commitments, and we had our music uh, was by Nico Muley and Anton Sanko, and their schedules were funky, too. So it, it took a little bit longer than I would have liked, but 
The good news is that we're releasing it now, and I think Sersha has never been more well-known and appreciated than she is right now. Same thing with Lizzie. So, and that is a national treasure. But Lizzie Moss and Sersha are both very popular right now, and I think that is very helpful for us because the Seagull, after all, is a Chekhov play on you know and it's a film of that and it's period and it's you know a little bit arty so anything we can do to get people in to see it is a good thing i've seen a couple of versions of it and there have been film versions of it too yeah there was famously i think the franklin cello oh that was for tv it wasn't really a film that was like a filmed version of the williamstown thing you can see that on youtube yeah seen parts of that i didn't watch the whole thing but there was a sydney lumet version with simone signore as arcadna james mason as tregoran and vanessa redgrave as nina they were all in different movies a little bit but it was still quite interesting when you're working with Chekhov, that's for film that's trying to pull that together is I would say almost harder than pulling together head over heels. <laughs> I would say it, it's a, it's pretty close, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you're devising a show that has mechanical and computerized material of a show like Head Over Heels, as opposed to Spring Awakening, which is much simpler that way, mm-hmm. how hard is it in the construction and building to deal with what can and can't be done on stage. You know, what's interesting, and and you're right, there is some computer-generated work here in terms of some of the projections which enhance the visuals, and there will be some automation in terms of flying the uh, drops in and out. But here in San Francisco, it's all done with hemp, just like old school, and it is painted flats. So it's actually very old school. We're doing a kind of Victorian toy theater. There's more set than we have for Spring Awakening, but it's very old school. It's not that it's not that sophisticated. Well, what about when it hits Broadway? It's going to be the same. We really want it to feel very handmade and very of the period so that we can feel like you're watching an old play that suddenly kicks into that pop punk 80s go-go's fabulousness. Well, the 80s, I mean, how are you doing the music? You're not doing Baroque versions of the go-go's, are you? We definitely are not. If they were, it's <laughs> that I don't think that would work. It's a five-piece band led by Kimberly Grigsby, who did Spring Awakening with me. And it's, you know, two guitars, bass, drums, and keyboard. And it will sound like the go-go's. Uh, Michael Mayer, when... You began You began as an actor, is that correct? Uh, yeah, a long time ago. <laughs> that was my dream, was to be an actor. And I did actually go to the graduate acting program at NYU and graduated, and they didn't kick me out. And I tried for a few years, struggled to try to have a career as an actor. And I became became aware early enough that that wasn't going to work out or that at least I didn't want to live the life of an out-of-work actor anymore, and I decided to go into directing. It was kind of a, not random, but I did, it was one day I thought, you know what, I'm going to be a director instead. I kind of decided. I mean, did you go to somebody and say, hey, I want to direct? I did. (laughs) I decided at the time, I told my boyfriend at the time that I wanted to do that, that that's what I wanted to do. 
And he was working at Marymount Manhattan College as um, an administrative assistant. And he talked to them and let me, and they, he got them to let me use their black box. And I directed a little Brecht play. It was the first thing I directed. And so that really began it. How did you wind up doing your film, uh, Home at the End of the World? That's how I met the wonderful Tom Hulse. Unbeknownst to me, he had been seeing a lot of my theater work, and he called me out of the blue and said, I'd like to take you to dinner. We went to the Union Square Cafe. I had met him very casually through the years, just at theater lobbies, like, oh, he was with people I knew, or like, hello, oh, nice to see you. Nothing. We never had more than a two-sentence exchange of hellos. And we sat down and we talked and he said he'd been watching my work and was a big admirer and had a hunch that maybe I would make a film director. And he had this property that he had the rights to and he thought it would make a wonderful film. He wondered if I knew the material. And he said, it's A Home at the End of the World by Michael Cunningham. And I said, I love that book. I actually know Michael. He's, you know, we're, we're friends. And he said, what, what, do you think this would make a good movie. And I was like, oh my God, yes. And so we were off to the races. It took a little while. It wasn't like easy, but that's how it began. Well, now you've worked on uh, Head Over Heels and after it goes to Broadway, then what? Because you've got the movie The Seagull. Do you have another movie coming out? Well, you know, I'm working on a movie with Pharrell Williams. It's going to be an original movie musical. And we're that's in a development stage right now. They're they're working on the script at the moment. And then I'm going to keep hopes that someday the American Idiot movie, which is at HBO, will happen. But I'm not, I've learned not to hold my breath at this point because I value staying alive. But then I have two operas at the Met this year, back to back. I'm Richard Walensky, and see you next Sunday for another edition of the Bay Area Theater Podcast. 